Come on, Jimmy. Who are you going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government... Thanks for being with us today, Keith. And uh, you're here to talk to us about uh, your recent book, uh, Denialism, An Unspeakable Truth. That's right, The Unspeakable Truth. The Unspeakable Truth, I beg your pardon. So one of the things in that book that you talk about is your your background. And I'm wondering, sorry, you had a Jewish upbringing, you say. So do you think that that Jewish upbringing has has led you to be more interested in this topic because for, for obvious reasons, I guess, because of Holocaust denial and so on? Uh, it's more than a Jewish upbringing. I mean, I'm very involved in Jewish life. Uh, I'm a practicing Jew. My wife is a rabbi. I work for Jewish institutions. Um, but I'm not actually sure whether Holocaust denial was, was necessarily... My interest in, in, in Holocaust denial and, and other things like that was necessarily came from my Jewish uh, background. Sure. I think it's more, I mean, obviously it impinges on it a bit, but the Holocaust has never been central to my identity as a Jew, partly because I refuse it to be, because I don't want to have a negative Jewish identity. I think it stems more from my interest in strange ideas which dates back to my teens uh, a fascination with uh, the the extraordinary ways that human beings construct their world in bizarre ways and i'm not entirely sure where that actually comes from <laughs> but perhaps one place is that there was an air of mystery around this stuff when i was growing up because i grew up pre-internet and getting hold of Holocaust denial stuff or any other kind of conspiracy theory wasn't easy. And therefore, it had a kind of aura about it. And that aura, even though now it's very easy, that aura has never really left it. It's still something that that, that haunts me, if you like. So that aura, uh, what you refer to, makes sense to me because... The idea of things like conspiracy theory, denialism, which you sort of write so well about, the I, they tend to have an element of the cultic, is that right? An element of uh, the mysterious? Yes, but I think less than they used to. And it depends on the particular form of denialism we're talking about. We're talking about climate change denialism. That's very public. And, and it's certainly mainstream even within certain media. I mean, there are major organizations within the UK, the US, and other parts of the world dedicated to doing this stuff. And they're, very, they're trying their very, very hardest not to appear culty. Um, and I think that's something that denialists don't want. They don't want to look uh, culty. They want to look like reputable mainstream scholarship. But inevitably, uh, it, it doesn't always work so well. And sometimes those Mia do do look like that. They do look sort of hermetic, exotic, and whatever else you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and this this uh, this does speak to sort of the trajectory of your ideas, 
Um, so, because you you speak about the transition from private self self deception to public uh, self deception or denialism, I guess, I'm wondering, could you perhaps maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Um, when I talk to my students, Keith, uh, and if you if you if you teach as frequently and as often as I do, one of the things you 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 find out is that you you end up having shortcuts or not shortcuts, well. Um, you end up having shorthands, I guess is what I'm saying, or you, you find out things that work well in teaching that uh, that that students can realize. And one of the things I always say to my students is that never underestimate the human capacity for denial. It's, it seems to be something very, very essential to, to our cognitive makeup. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, but and one of the reasons why I think it's important to make the distinction between what you might call everyday denial and denialism is that uh, I don't want our capacity for denial to be seen as pathological because I don't think it is. It's necessary to the, to a degree. We cannot face everything about ourselves and the world all the time. We have to proceed as though the world is different as it is, at least some of the time. Uh, there's a book that was, became very popular in the 1970s by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death that basically says, you know, human civilization is predicated on the denial that we are ultimately people that will die. Why is it that we build what Becker calls civilizational projects, knowing that they will outlast us if there wasn't a settlement of denial in it? So denial is useful and necessary to a bit, but there is there is a point where it becomes dangerous both to ourselves and others. But tying down or identifying that point is a very difficult and controversial issue. And that's one of the things I've been trying to do, I think. Does does Freud play a role in this for you? Because I, when I think, I mean, I think Freud is probably the great guru, if you like, of uh, the question of, I guess, a form of denial. It is a sort of theory of uh, Within his theory of repression. Well, yeah, I, I, yes, that is important, and it's certainly part of the background behind the ideas I've been working with. Uh, but I'm slightly suspicious of it in the sense that I think that the way that Freud has become mainstreamed and, if you like, vulgarized, has led to a kind of misunderstanding of what he was talking about, which is that. Uh, when, when, too often saying to someone these days you're in denial suggests that, that you know, you've got a problem, you've got a pathology. But I don't think that's what Freud is talking about. I mean, I think Freud is saying, yes, repression can be dangerous. It can be very dangerous. Uh, but, but a degree of it is necessary and inevitable. And it, it, what, what I think Freud was going for, and, what, and in fact, psychoanalysis... Uh, uh, the way I understand it, certainly today and, and previously, has never been aimed at uh, an illusory goal of total self-awareness, total freedom from repression, but rather f as a way of getting on with the world. In that sense, it's a very practical idea with modest, uh, with with fairly modest goals. Of course, that's not how of how it's often understood. And maybe it's not often, not always understood that way by its practitioners as well. But I think if you go back to Freud, you will see, you will see this. He is not, he's, he's, his attitude to the world is in some ways 
very practical, uh, very earthy, even if you like, rather than uh, utopian. That makes sense to me. One of the things that Freud famously said is that he's trying to return the human being to its naturally unhappy state or trying to get the human being to reconcile with its natural unhappy state. I mean, he's sort of marginally pessimistic in that sense, which would reinforce your point, really, that that in some sense denial is necessary, denialism is necessary, um, and and not utopian. So maybe we could uh, use that as a as a as a as a next step in our conversation. You're making a distinction between denial, I guess psychological denial, or private self-deception, and uh, denialism, the idea that de- denial has reified into a type of ideology. Yeah, I, I think the the difference between denial and denialism is fairly manifold. I think it, it, it may stem from the same basic processes, but it builds something that's very, very different. You can talk about denial both individually and collectively. You can have societies that are based that who's who where where a, a refusal to face certain things is the norm. So um for example, some countries that have committed genocide, um, an awareness of the genocide is always there, but it's not recognized. It's kind of like an open secret. But denial is a kind of silence, if you like, a refusal to face something. It's a kind of vacuum. Denialism is much more active. Denialism attempts to fill that vacuum. It doesn't, it, it's not simply a silence. It, it, it's presence rather than absence. It's creating alternative arguments uh, rather than just letting uh, ra- rather than just letting things not be said, and it emerges very much when there is almost no choice but to do so. Uh, so, if you look at Holocaust denial, the Holocaust uh, was extensively discussed increasingly in the uh, in the decades following World War Two. And so simply not talking about it was, was not an option. If you wanted to, uh, if you wanted, if you were an anti-Semite and the Holocaust was a problem for your cause, then you actually had to build arguments against the idea that there was a Holocaust. And so denialism is very, and you can't do it on your own. It's collective. It's collective, it builds institutions, it builds presence, it's, it's a collaboration uh, between in- individuals in order to fill an absence, if you like. That makes sense to me, Keith, um, because if we look at the exponents of the different things you talk about, um, like Holocaust denial, climate change denial, anti-vaxxing, uh, AIDS denialism, genocide denialism, the people who are exponents of this tend to be very loud. Yes, I mean they, they want to be. They want publicity. They want. Uh, they want to be heard. Uh, that's the whole point of it, really. Uh, they're trying to counter something. They're trying to create an alternative to a broad consensus. So just to do it privately would would make a great deal of sense. Um, and, but, but on the other hand, and that's one of the reasons why they're very concerned about their public image. So 
they hate the term denialism. They absolutely hate the term. Uh, no denialist wants to be called a denialist. And I do get correspondence since my book's published saying this uh, in often very hurt and outraged terms. Uh, but I think it still remains the best way of classifying and understanding a phenomena. Okay, so my next question is that then um, you have given this sort of desire for legitimacy this desire to be part of the establishment, to this desire to be a rival for truth within denialism. I'm wondering, in terms of the different forms of denialism that you have uh, looked at, do, are you noticing that there are common denominators? So is there a common denominator between climate change denialism and, say, anti-vaxxing, or between AIDS denialists or Holocaust denialism? Is, do they follow the same pattern? In that, in that seeking for legitimacy, publicity? They work in very similar ways. There are similar techniques that are common to all, most or all. That doesn't mean that uh, someone who espouses one of them necessarily espouses the other, or often there is overlap, but it's not guaranteed. Um, the degree to which they've learnt from each other also varies widely. I think it's more that there are, over the last several decades, people have learnt to, uh, learnt how to develop these, uh, these alternative arguments that are, in their own terms, effective. Um, so denialism, you can, if you, you can spot it generally because there are particular ways in which it's done. There are particular ways that arguments are built. And that isn't to say that other people um, don't use these arguments. Um, you can make bad arguments for reasonable propositions. Uh, but the difference is, is that for denialists, that's all they've got. So to give you an argument, uh, to give you one example of the, of the way they do it, one way that denialists work is by trying to focus down on very tiny details and, and, and trying to divert all attention from the big question to the small question, because the big question, there are very little chance of overturning uh, the consensus. But on little questions, they might, if they work hard enough, at the very least create doubt. So one thing you'll find a lot in climate change denialism uh, is, for example, um, raising the, the polar bear population of the Arctic, uh, questioning whether polar bear populations are in decline. One thing you find in Holocaust denial, in, when David Irving took Deborah Lipstadt to court, um, he focused a lot on aerial photographs of the crematorium and whether or not they showed what 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 the chimneys were like. So... The question of a Holocaust, which was a massive event involving huge numbers of people, becomes focused down to the question of what a chimney looks like from above. Um, and that, that, again, anyone can use those sorts of arguments. But other people um, have other options. Denialists have no options but to use um, techniques like that. That's really useful. That's a really useful way right there, I think, Kate, for helping people identify denialistic, denialistic if I can say it that way, uh, discourse. There is a preference for 
the specific rather than the general. So then the specific becomes something that is used to undermine the overall narrative, such as the examples you gave of uh, Irvine and the, the chimneys at the Holocaust. Yes, indeed. Um, the it, it, Yes, it's a where you can spot it. It's not infallible, but it but people who use those sorts of very, very specificities um, are at least people that you should be suspicious of. Okay. And so it's very difficult. As a philosopher, the question I'd like to ask then is that, I mean, and I think this speaks to your analysis also, one of the things that characterizes the human being and sort of a lot of behavioral economics, sorry, behavioral economists such as Daniel Kahneman have have talked about this, and that's that human beings are naturally biased. So in a sense, a very, very difficult thing to spot in oneself and in others is is denialism then a, a form of bias? Well, yes, but I, I, I'm not a big fan of the concept of bias because its corollary is objectivity, which I think is a very problematic concept. We all come from somewhere. We all come. Uh, we all come from a particular viewpoint. The way we see the world is not godlike. We can only see uh, uh, so far. So bias is an endemic issue. But what you can do is that you can see is that you can develop arguments that are robust and that are the most likely explanation of what of why something is happening. You can develop arguments that that uh, you could, that are predicated on their potential falsifiability in 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 Karl Popper's famous terms, and that is what scholarship does. Um, so, and decent decent scholars will always will always do that. So, one thing, it, it, one very unfortunate thing about scholarship on the Holocaust is that a number of myths have developed over the years. So one of the myths is that the Nazis made soap out of uh, out of the fat of Jews. That's not true. It's a it's a myth. And reputable historians have debunked that. And that is part of the process through which scholarship uh, uh, develops. There's no such thing as a final perfect truth. Climate change scholarship is exceptionally difficult. Uh, but what you can at least do with climate change scholarship is, uh, is use techniques of research uh, that are rigorous and that provide the best explanation from the facts that are at your, at your disposal. And those things that you don't understand, you can pose them as theories. So in climate change scholarship, there is a consensus that anthropogenic climate change is happening. There isn't a consensus on its projections. There are certain views that are more dominant than others. And those projections will change over time. They are constantly being revised, and that's how science should work. Uh, But is there bias there? Of course there's bias. Uh, but reputable scholarship has mechanisms for at least minimizing bias and when mistakes have been made and when knowledge becomes better, revising scholarship uh, accordingly. And that is what is happening with mainstream climate science. 
So then, then the question is: Does the denialist reach a broader and narrow consensus? I'm proposing. I'm, I'm. I'm assuming you would say that they would reach a narrow consensus among the initiated, among fellow travellers, whereas I guess someone who is trying to reach a broader conception of truth will have uh, will take the long view for for example no uh, they they don't necessarily reach a consensus or rather they do reach a consensus a negative consensus but not necessarily a positive consensus so the consensus amongst holocaust deniers is that the, is that the story is wrong the story we've been told is wrong Within the Holocaust denial community, there are various uh, schools of thought, if you like, about what, quote-unquote, really happened. Uh, but they are they're united in their starting assumption that the Holocaust, as we understand it, did not happen. Um, now, it's tr also true to say that, there are, that, that in those older and better established denialisms, there are there is more uh, there is a greater degree of unity than in newer ones um so for example denial of the uh, september the 11th terrorist attacks there are multiple different views on what quote unquote really happened that haven't yet cohered into a consensus but i think one of the things about denialist communities is that in some respects diversity is something they welcome and want. They want to have more and more possibilities about why the official story is wrong. And whether or not these uh, these possibilities, these, these potential theories could ever be proved right, which of course they can't, um, they provide a... They, they, they build to a big heap of doubt. So the fact, so so in in that respect, disunity is strength. Well, that would be another example of the denialist, or those who are proponents of denialism, trying to create, I don't know, a counter tradition, sort of a holographic representation of legitimate discourse, where diversity is a good thing. You know, so like I don't know, like in the marketplace of ideas, a diversity of opinion will help you strengthen your 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 perspective rather than narrow it. It's not completely different to what mainstream science does, uh, but what you don't see in denialist communities to the same degree is dissensus. If you come up with another theory about why the World Trade Center was not brought down by Al-Qaeda terrorists, that is likely to be welcomed. If in the scholarly community you come up with another projection of why uh, of of temperature rises in within the next century, um, people will it, 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 it may lead to more dissensus that isn't necessarily productive in a way. Now, one of the most recent, I think, additions to denialism is the flat earth theory, which recently seems to be getting a little more purchase in culture. For example, the flat earth theories has kind of a sort of a, I don't know, a postmodern ironic cachet almost, you know, that... 
I know we buy the T-shirts to Flat Earth Theory, we don't take it seriously, we yet yet we laugh at it, but it is certainly something that has that is that is out there. I think. What uh, how what is your take on that as a, a part of the phenomenon that you're examining? Flat Earth Theory has been revived, and it's definitely serious. It's definitely a real thing, uh, which isn't to say that there aren't some jokers out there. Flat Earth Theory was essentially moribund by the 1970s. The uh, Flat Earth Society was revived at that point by a bunch of uh, students in America as a kind of joke. That shows how far they'd fallen. The internet gives it has given it a new lease of life because it's meant that those isolated individuals who think something is wrong with the official narrative can find each other, can, can build on each other's work and can amplify their voice. Uh, and it shows how uh, online discourse has empowered denialism. The fact that a dead denialism could be revived in that way uh, is 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 a very disturbing thing, really. Um, and again, there's no necessary consensus amongst them, but they like that. They like the fact that there are multiple reasons why the Earth is flat. Why, why it's flat and what the implications are and what happens when you get to the edge, there isn't necessarily any one fixed view. It's, it's, it's a process as much as it is a fixed idea. I wonder, what do proponents of denialism such as flat earth theorists, or I wonder is there an overlap between flat earth theorists and people who are suspicious of the moon landing? Um, I wonder, I wonder, I always wonder, what do proponents of Delialism get out of it? What psychological satisfaction emerges from it? Well, to answer the first question, there is overlap. Uh, Some things particularly work well together, but I'll tell you an interesting story, which is uh, I worked on a, a short explainer video for something called BBC Ideas on denialism. It's about three and a half minutes long. You can find it online. I put a link to it on the show notes. Thank you. And and the animator, unbeknownst to me, I never noticed it when it was being done. I didn't do the animation. Obviously, it was the production company. Uh, they have a figure of a denialist, a sort of prototypical denialist in it. And the, the denialist in the video is wearing uh, the badge with the official logo of the Flat Earth Society. And uh, I'd never noticed that. But I suddenly found out that the Flat Earth Society had complained to the BBC about it um, because it was copyright violation, which is fair enough. The BBC blurred it out. Uh, But the interesting thing was in the tweets that the Flat Earth Society sent is that they were angry that they had been associated with climate change denialists. They didn't want to be associated with them. (laughs) I'm sure that some Flat Earthers are climate change denialists, but the people behind the Flat Earth Society are not. And, I, and I've and i had quite a bit of correspondence along these lines of like anti-vaxxers saying, how dare you associate me with climate change denial and, and vice versa. Uh, but nonetheless, in the more out there forms, if, if, you, if you can believe, if you can disbelieve one apparently solid narrative, then what's to stop you disbelieving the rest? It certainly is a gateway to other forms of denialism. Uh, But to answer your question of what people get out of it, there are a number of things. But uh, I think one thing to emphasize is that denialism is tremendously empowering in a world in which 
science is the domain of specialists and no one knows everything and that you know, to be a scientist is to focus on a tiny little area of knowledge. Um, to be a denialist is to take the world in your hands, to take scholarship in your hands and to say you can see what others can, cannot. You can build the truth just as other cans and, and uh, other people can and a better kind of truth at that. Um, it's, it's a very empowering uh, thing, I think. The other thing I think that's behind denialism is what I talk about in the book is a, is, is, is a desire. Uh, is a desire that cannot be spoken of. Um, one of the things I argue is that in the modern world, certain things that humans have done for, for centuries or even millennia became un literally unspeakable in the modern world. So one of these things is genocide. Genocide becomes something, it, it was a, if not common or garden, then it was certainly something that human beings did and spoke of. So ancient emperors would raise monuments boasting of the peoples that they had destroyed. Uh, the, the desire for genocide is no less today than what it was two, three thousand years ago, but you can't speak of it, you can't legitimate it. So that means that you're put into an impossible situation where uh, denialism is a way of advocating something without not advocating it. Because if you look at Holocaust denial, the, the it's it, it, if you take Holocaust denial seriously, what it really is arguing is that Jews, by virtue of the fact that they came out with this massive, massive hoax, are devilish human beings that really deserve to be wiped out. Um, in other denialisms, it's a, it, it's a slightly different motivating force. Uh, a lot of climate change deniers, particularly those who are libertarian capitalists, uh, cannot bear the idea that unrestrained capitalism can lead to uh, environmental catastrophe and the huge suffering that comes with it. They cannot openly argue saying we should do nothing about climate change. It's not, it, it's not a speakable option. And so denialism becomes a covert way of of uh, of forwarding what you desire to happen without openly speaking of it. And that's when it becomes extremely dangerous, I think. I wonder, in addition to that, that's, thanks, that's really helpful. In addition to that, do you think that, and this probably speaks to what you're saying, the in terms of empowerment, I often wonder if those who engage or indulge in conspiracy theories you know, such as the nine eleven, uh, the nine the the nine eleven um, conspiracy theory. <clears throat> Excuse me. Are they? Is there secretly a kind of love of authority embedded in it? You know, so the the idea would be that yeah, we have this uh, conspiracy theory that these uh, this ragtag bunch of uh, terrorists from uh, outside our country could actually pull off this massive uh, event like this. And when in fact it's, it was it was done by our own government, you know, the people in charge of us are actually still in very much in charge of us. Well, it's not a love of authority, but I think it's a overestimation of what is possible. The problem with all denialisms contains some kind of conspiracy theory at the heart, and and the problem with conspiracies happen. There are conspiracies throughout history. 
but there is a certain degree of impossibility in conspiracies that would involve thousands and thousands of people not speaking of something. And most denialist conspiracy theories, were they to be true, would tell us something about humanity that we didn't know, which is that it's possible to coordinate enormous numbers of people silently without any of them speaking. So if if Holocaust denial is really true, we would have millions of Jews, uh, well, the descendants of millions of Jews, of course, now it's several decades on, who were moved from areas in Poland and Russia and Ukraine or wherever uh, to other places, including Israel, and nobody talked. And not only did nobody talk, but Israel, for example, every census that Israel has done is false because there are millions of more people in Israel um, than, um, than they're admitting to. And that means that there is an entirely separate system of government and state planning, one based on the fake figures and one based on the real figures. Um, so that is simply implausible. If it, if it were true, it would be the greatest discovery in human history because it would suggest <laughs> that people are capable of near tele telepathic communication and complexity. So... Yes, there's a kind of, if you like, there's a kind of awe in the ability of human beings to coordinate these things uh, behind a lot of denialism. But but it, it, it's 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 certainly not love. It's it's a kind of paranoia based on an overestimation of what of what is possible to do in a conspiratorial manner. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, when you think about it, the truth tends to be the, the truth tends to be very very messy. I, I think of like. Um... You know some of the the cover up, say, of the Catholic Church, and I think like that. Yes, in some sense, there was a lot of actual, as you say, conspiracy that there was cover up, there was hidden agendas and things like that. But in another sense, it was just overlooked. It was silent. It was nobody talked about it. There was absolutely no organisation involved in another level. It was not centrally direct. Precisely. It was. It was a series. The reason why. I mean, it was, it's a huge thing. I mean, huge numbers of cases of sexual abuse were either ignored or covered up, not just in Ireland, in America, right the way through the Catholic world. Um, but this wasn't coming from the Pope all the way down. It wasn't coming from the cardinals. It wasn't coming from the archbishops. Now, archbishops or, or cardinals may have repeatedly uh, colluded or, or arranged that priests were moved from one parish to another or preventing the truth to come out. But they had no central plan in mind. It was just a series of contingent uh, actions. Now, you can talk, of course, about culture, uh, uh, the organizational culture of the Catholic Church, which allowed that to happen. But to understand an organizational culture is it, it, it's a very, it's a much more nebulous thing you can't it, it's not a hierarchical thing where there is a plan that is put into place from the top down uh it, it's in fact i mean i suppose it, it, if you think about it in some ways if you do believe there's a centrally directed conspiracy it makes politics comfortingly easy easy you know you just all you have to do is expose the people behind it and destroy their 
clan, and that's it. You have no more sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Um, but it doesn't work like that. It's a much more intractable issue. Uh, it's a much more intractable problem. And so denialism offers a comforting vision where, say in the case of climate change, where all you need to do for the, the, for the world to be free would be to expose these evil, the collusion between these evil people who are faking, uh, faking scientific results. Um, but but even even if even if it was the case that people were faking climate science, which they're not, it wouldn't be done like that. It wouldn't be done as a centrally directed conspiracy. So in that respect, denialism fails as a convincing sociological explanation of how uh, how conspiracy actually happened. One thing that strikes me is that it doesn't seem to have a sophisticated at least, account of power relations. No, I mean, it's... No, to say the least. <laughs> it's power very much as a zero-sum game. It's uh, oppression or liberation. Um, uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's simply... It, it's not good sociology, to say the very least. Now, one of the things you talk about is sort of denialism as a discourse. And... The denialists, as you say, are tend to be craving uh, legitimacy, craving respectability. I'm wondering, and this is probably something to do with the 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 with new technologies that we've developed over the last twenty years. Has denialism moved from the fringes to the centre of public discourse? It depends where you're talking about. Uh, I think in America, the very least, climate change denialism is. Uh, if not quite normative, very close to being within the Republican right. Um, and certainly there's a wider, consp- wider dominance of, of conspiratorial thinking there. Uh, it depends from country to country. Um, it is certainly possible for countries to, uh, to elect politicians who hold to denialist theories. But one thing that happens when denialists get into power is they don't necessarily need to be denialists anymore. So you can see that with Stephen Harper's prime ministership in Canada. Uh, he was the one who preceded Trudeau. One of the things, he, he was a climate change denialist, but he didn't really need to be in, off, in office. They, he was able to close down or restrict climate science uh, prevent scientists from speaking out and so forth. So simple denial becomes a much more practical option once you have the power to silence. Uh, the other thing is that uh, is that one of the things we're starting to see now is the rise of what I call post-denialism, which is embodied by Donald Trump in America, which is a kind of lazy form of denialism that almost but not quite admits the truth. That, that really hardly bothers anymore to do the work of developing this alternative scholarship in the way that classic denialism does. So Donald Trump on climate change, he sometimes says it's a hoax created by the Chinese. He sometimes says it's happening, but it's not man-made. He sometimes says it's happening, but it's not significant. There's really no consistency there. 
Um, and this is what we call post-denialism. It's a weakening of denialism and is perhaps one step further towards um, uh, being able to speak what has previously been unspeakable. That's almost, so, so almost, that's fascinating. That almost sounds like a sort of acceleration. And so since we should, we should welcome post-denialism because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just not as legitimate in sort of the hierarchy of legitimacy, if you like, of uh, candidacies for uh, truth or objectivity or truth in the broad sense that you're talking about. However, I'm not sure that's exactly what you're arguing, because it would seem to me, at least, that that type of denialism is a further coarsening of the debate where we're in a situation now where we, where we, 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 we can't discriminate between different candidates for the truth. Does that make sense? Yes, and that's very worrying. The and it, it, but on the other hand, I'm not sure it's a silver lining, but it's it's something that we're going to have to confront. Which is one of the things I argue with my book, and it's not an argument I wanted to make, but felt that I had no choice but to make, is that because denialism debunking generally doesn't work with denialists. So therefore, we have to think about what the alternative to denialism is. And the, if you really want to see an end to denialism, really, it would be a world in which people could speak their desires openly. So libertarian free marketers could say, no, we should do nothing about climate change, even if Bangladesh is going to get drowned. The question is, would we want that? Would we want Holocaust deniers abandoning Holocaust denialism and just saying, yes, all Jews should be killed. And that's a very unwelcome prospect, but it does perhaps raise the possibility of a politics that is perhaps more honest, perhaps more open, and perhaps one where there is a real debate over real issues rather than this kind of shadow boxing that occurs when you're trying to debate denialists. You talk about... Sorry, go on. So that's the question I raise. I'm not happy about raising it, but I think we need to at least consider that question. One of the things you talk about is this sort of, I guess, dialectic of denial, the sort of the back and forth between uh, proof and disproof. And in some sense, I guess that's what you're saying right now, that that is, we're moving away from that. And you are, I guess it's almost a free speech argument, isn't it? It's better, it's better that, you, it is better that sort of like say Nazis are saying yes we should kill all Jews in the open because then at least that is more truthful or more credible because then we can go okay that exists let's deal with it rather than some kind of um, some kind of dialectic where we have these this constant contestation of uh, legitimate truth versus illegitimate truth or truth and counter truth okay now one of the other things I want to ask you on this is I think. We, uh, Michael Gove very famously said, uh, what, what did he say precisely? The country is sick and tired of experts. And he he did speak to something on that, whatever you might think of Michael Gove, for better or worse. But the legitimacy of science, I think, is 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 more becoming more and more contested. You see this in the idea that there's there's very few sort of public scientists working in Britain, for example, and maybe more so in America. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the role of science in, in this. Well, I, I think the situation partly arose because uh, scientists are often not good at public communication with some 
quite a few honourable exceptions to that. Uh, and I think scientists are often working with a, a very naive epistemology where the truth will win, which which is not necessarily the case. But it, it's the, the thing about science, though, is however well it's communicated, however brilliant public intellectuals some scientists may or may not be, they can science can be inconvenient. It can raise the unintended or intended uh, consequences of actions. It it can explain if you what happens if you continue on a particular course, and then it can explain what people did in the past and the consequences of that. Um, and I think that is there's a kind of failure at will to reject science when it's inconvenient. What I'm suggesting is the other way to do it is to say, yes, the science says this, but we should still do what we're doing because ultimately that is what we believe should happen. Um, and if I think in the case of Brexit, the, the, those advocating it had said, you know, it's not going to be easy. There, there may well be very difficult economic consequences but we should still do it, and here is why, then that would at least be an argument with some integrity. Um, but instead, we had like what, the sort of thing that Michael Gove said, and that's one of the reasons why we're in such trouble at the moment. Of course, having said that, if they had been more honest, would they have won the referendum? Well, perhaps. Who knows? But at the very least we would have been able to have had a proper debate, which I don't think we do. Do you think that postmodernism then and the postmodern critique of science is in some way responsible for creating the conditions in which denialism can flourish? What I th I don't see... Sure. There, is, there isn't, as far as I can see, extensive evidence that the people behind denialism are people who've gone through cultural studies courses where they were taught postmodernism. You know, there are examples of that. It's certainly true. It's not unknown. What I th but, but I th think certainly these big, well-funded institutions in America that are behind climate change denialism, <laughs> they're not people who drank the postmodern Kool-Aid. You know, they, they haven't been reading Lyotard, Baudrillard, Derrida or anything like that. What I think happened, though, is that, is that the, to speak very, very broadly, the political right has been much better at operationalizing postmodernism, uh, finding it a way to wield it for political ends. Um, there are many exceptions to that, but I don't see that postmodern theory has been the one that is has been responsible for undermining of the concept of truth in society. And I also think, going further, that you can still accept uh, a postmodern kind of epistemology and still identify and call out denialism. What postmodernism uh, doesn't say is that any truth is as good as the rest, although I think it's often interpreted uh, as as to mean it, what postmodernism does is to look critically at the process through which knowledge is produced, uh, and, and the ways that human beings are not 
don't have a godlike eye, but are people that, that, as I said earlier in this interview, have a particular standpoint. Now, I think that's perfectly consistent with saying that, to take the example of the Holocaust, that um, the the the, um, the gas the, the gassing or extermination through labour or other murdering of six million Jews is what happened. What postmodernism does, though, is allow you to look critically at the narratives through which that was explained. In fact, I would I would even say that my own encountering with those sorts of ideas has helped me understand denialism better because one thing that postmodern ideas are very good at doing is to look critically at discourse. Sure, and that would that would make perfect sense. Well, if not necessarily post-denialism, at least denialism, because as, as you say, it's a, it, it, it expresses itself as a candidate for truth, you know, as a neutral, disinterested, objective phenomenon. So yes, exactly. They they are expressing themselves as modernists, as objectivists, as positivists. Um, but in fact, even post denialists are very, very interested in the concept of truth. Um, they just understand truth as the the final authority of truth being the self and the self's experience. Now, uh, that perhaps takes us a little closer. It's true to postmodern ideas. Uh, but but it's still very much dominated on an idea of truth, um, a, a, on a very, if you like, reactionary idea of truth. The, the idea that truth is arbitrated by the subject, by the self, which is, I guess, well, it's not even a liberal idea that it's, it's a solipsistic idea, ultimately. Yeah, or maybe romantic. You could look at it in 19th century romanticism, perhaps. But it, it, but it's not, it, it doesn't sit easily with the work of Jack Derrida. <laughs> No, quite. The um, the other thing, I mean, I'm wondering, in, in all of this, what are your thoughts on the whole post-truth debate? Sorry, post-truth, uh, you know, fake news, post-truthers and stuff like that. Is that something that you've thought about? Or is that something that feeds into post-denialism? Well, they're very similar concept, concepts. I'm looking at a particular aspect of that phenomenon and trying to explain it. I think the concept of post-truth is perhaps a little bit too vague uh, and it sort of bundles up a whole series of phenomena under one heading uh, so I think post-denialism allows you to look at a slice of some of the things that have been put under that that sort of heading The, but again the, one of the problems with the idea of post-truth is that it, it, it is that it it ties you back into this very unproductive war over what is the truth I don't think what's going to get us out of this mess is going to be a, so, a, a, a sort of positivist game as to who holds the banner of truth highest, because it, it, it because it, it's simply a fact that multiple people say that they have truth on their side, but we still have to act in the world. Uh, and therefore, it's not the most useful of concepts, I think, in understanding this. I'm wondering then in terms of the general discourse and probably the alarm that you have at the eroding of public discourse, what tools would you think would help us challenge denialism? I mean, I remember once I posted on Facebook, I think there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was, a, there was a, an article saying, 
how to spot fake news or something like that. And I'd rather glibly put up you know, just philosophy. Um, I think we need something a little bit more robust and sophisticated than just uh, just that. Um, I'm wondering. So I'm wondering, what do you think are the tools that uh, help us identify denialism, challenge denialism, and help people who are exponents of denialism to challenge their own views? So there's starting to be a fair amount of work on this, particularly informed by uh, findings from neuropsychology, which have showed just how far human beings are make uh, uh, adopt positions and arguments based not on a disinterested uh, process of judging the facts, but through instinct and assertion and so on. Uh, but some people, based on that research, have found ways in which, although it's difficult, it is possible to what's called inoculate people from denialism, to be able to spot bad arguments. And it's even possible sometimes to make people who have fallen into it to reconsider their their views. Um, but what that research shows is you, you do it not through loud assertions and aggressive uh, saying, no, you're wrong, but through empathy and extensive processes of dialogue, which is pretty arduous, and it's extremely difficult to do, and it doesn't even always work. My sense is that we is that the ultimate way thing that we're going to have to do is to make denialism to some degree redundant, to make people be able to speak of their uh, to allow people to speak of their desires so that they don't necessarily challenge the findings of scholarship because they don't treat it as inconvenient, whatever it says. But that's a long-term process, and it's a very difficult one to contemplate for the reasons we were talking about earlier. But ultimately, I think that that is something that we are going to have to consider. Uh, truth, Truth is difficult. Truth is hard. Well, it's not about truth being difficult so much as truth being is is truth gets in the way but so maybe the response to that is to treat it as not getting in the way that 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 it provides an option but only an option so as i say if the fact that our carbon-fueled lifestyle is going to lead to this catastrophe that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it that that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue on that path it just means uh, it, it just means that that path will have consequences. Kate Ken Harris, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.